Lord, our, our hearts sing praise and honour unto you. Um, yeah. Like Rach said, we're a, we're a people who face sorrows and yet the man of sorrows went to that cross for us and carried all of our griefs up that hill and the stone was rolled away. Lord, we, we want to embrace the new life that is ours in Jesus and we pray this morning as we uh, look at your word and, and seek to grow as your people, that you would lead us to be more like Jesus, that you would lead us to embrace the life that is ours in him and to live it, Lord, for the joy, for the joy of growing in you and knowing you more. We pray in, in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, hang on. That's working. Cool. Um, we're taking a little two-week gap here from our uh, Luke series that we've been running through for forever. Um, I'm just going to it's not actual forever, but it's a fair while. Um, this is our, our kind of launch series for the year, and we're calling it Being Church. Uh, and, and that, for me, as a name, keys me on to a little question that I want to start with today. Um, if I asked you what a church looks like, how would you answer that question? You know, what would be the most obvious things, the obvious marks that stood out to you? You know, some people might answer with, I'm not going to give you a chance to answer, sorry, I'm just going to give you a bunch of possible answers. But if you have an extra one, feel free to yell out, but not for the whole sermon. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> some people uh, might give the culturally informed kind of, you know, Western historical answer. You know, the church is a building, it's got a cross on the top, it um, looks different to the other buildings around it. My suspicion is that if you're at Gospel Church this week, uh, that, that you've got a, a hint at least that that's not the case um, because you're sitting in essentially a bar and this is the church. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you'd go one step further. I think a lot of us would. You'd give the usual response to the church is a building uh, and say, you know, it doesn't matter what the building looks like or if there is a building, the church is in a building, the church looks like a people. That's true, certainly. But we're kind of still stuck with the same question, aren't we? Um, what, what people? And, and what do those people do? What marks them out as the church? There's lots of people gatherings around. I don't know if you've noticed. What makes the church different to the golf club or the tennis club or the senior citizens or the girl guides? Uh, once again, what does it look like? Maybe you might list some of the marks or the practices of the church, right? Um, a church meets on a Sunday morning or evening. We used to do that. A church is led by elders. A church sings. A church takes part in the Lord's Supper, communion. Uh, a church baptizes people. A church preaches the word. A church has an update slot. A church has coffee with delicious biscuits. A church says the right set of words every week. But, but, but what if I told you that all of those things, none of that is what is central to what makes a church church. Don't get me wrong, many of those things are actually vital to the church. Some of them you can't have a church without, but there is something more at the centre than that. Uh, when you think about it, uh, all of those things that I listed actually uh, are a description, most of them at least, are a description of things uh, that you either come and do once a week or, or worse still, things that you come and consume once a week. Maybe things that you come and have done to you once a week. 
or for you once a week. But as we've already noted, the church is a people, right? Not a person, not an elite group of producers and a standard group of consumers. The Bible consistently teaches that the church is a people, an active people. One of the, uh, one of the most consistent images in the New Testament for the church is that it is a body in which every part must be active and living for it to thrive. So clearly a, a consumerist church modeled around simply coming and getting is not the fullness of the biblical picture of church, right? Like that, that should be fairly obvious. Perhaps the key quest question we need to, to get to uh, is not just what does a church look like, but because a church is a people, what does it mean to be a person in the church? What does it mean to be a part of a church? A church is the people after all. So to understand churches, we need to understand what it means to be a person in a church, to be the people of the church together. Again, you might say, you know, it means attending once a week or it means being a part of a roster, heaven forbid. Uh, or, or again, it means taking communion, singing the right songs, saying the right words. Uh, but again, all of those answers really do fall terribly short of what it means to be the church. And, and what I want to get at today is that what is central to being a Christian and being the church is that we are being disciples. At the heart of what a church does and what a church is lies this reality. We are the spirit-powered disciples of Jesus sent to make disciples for Jesus. And now let me briefly say a disciple uh, in this context is someone who grows to be like Jesus. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, the church was brought into existence with these words, go into the world and make disciples. And when we say discipleship, uh, we don't mean a program of the church only. Uh, we mean a way of living that is as big as your life. We mean a community of people who, by the power of God's Spirit in them, are freed by the gospel to be mutually transformed, to be more like Jesus in all of life. Over this week and next, uh, like I said, we're doing this mini-series titled Being Church. And really, that's what we're looking at, discipleship. How we live the life of discipleship that every person who follows Jesus has been called into. Because that is at the core of what it means for us to be the church, to be the people of God in this world. And, and it's something that the church hasn't always grasped fully. And let me say up front, um, we're, not, we're, we're doing this because, because this week we're launching our gospel communities. Now, there's stuff in these sermons that you're going to get that you'll be blessed by, whether you're in a gospel community or not. But we're doing this because we're launching those gospel communities. That is not a hidden goal of this series. It is an explicit one. Um, we, as a church, as we begin these communities, first need to see how vital this is for us as a people of Jesus' disciples. We, you might have heard me announcing the, the gospel communities, GCs, if you will, over the last few weeks talking about it on and off for over a year now really since we started as a church uh, and, and you may have thought to yourself great you know um, home groups sounds nice but I could take it or leave it 
Um, but who could blame you, really? Um, when, when you look at historically kind of these, these home gatherings in churches, so often church small groups become either kind of social clubs uh, where we get together once a week, have a coffee together, have a lovely chat, or, or, or maybe brain-only Bible study groups where, where no one's changed and no one's saved. I don't know if that relates to you. That relates to my experience of, of church home groups. Um, but I hope that by the end of today and by the end of next week's sermon, uh, those who are listening will have a, a clear vision for why this is something that Jesus calls us to, why these groups are not just secondary but are actually vital to the life and the growth of this church and to the Christians in this church. My second reason that I really want to do this is that as we start our gospel communities, our GCs, we need to get off on the right foot with the, with the right expectations of what the purpose of these gospel communities is. Because it's very, very easy. I know this from my own experience of my own heart. It's very easy for us to fall back into old norms and, and, and old comforts. It's very easy for a group that starts with a vision for the growth of the gospel to become nothing more than a social group or nothing more than a study group where, where no one's changed, no one is reached, and no growth of any kind really happens except for maybe some kind of cerebral growth. Really, in the end, if it's only that, we just get bigger heads. If that's the case, then, you know, if that was all we did, then, then with those who would doubt the importance of GCs, I would say, why waste your time? Stay home. Keep the Tuesday night or Wednesday night or Sunday night. But if gospel communities are the, the seedbeds where we grow as an authentic community of disciples who see the gospel applied into our lives and who are uh, together driven to go out on the mission to make disciples, then this is, this is something that has to happen. So we're going to cover kind of four aspects of how discipleship is envisioned in the Bible um, as, as, a, as a together process, as being the church. And we're going to cover three of them today and one of them next week. Uh, and we're going to draw all of these directly from uh, the disciple-making ministry of Jesus and from the New Testament. And, and our three today are that we're going to look at being exposed, being instruments, and being restored. So first, uh, if, if we are to be the church, that is, if we are to live as the Spirit-powered disciples of Jesus, sent to make disciples for Jesus, then that takes a spirit-powered level of authenticity. You know, in the modern world, especially in the West, we love the idea that, that we grow in a classroom or by reading a book. I mean, and don't, don't hear me saying those things are bad. I got, I got a whopping great bookshelf, and it's got things in it. Um, many of them I intend to read. Some of them I've read. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, I get the, the backlog. Anyway, um, but... But here's a question for you, right? If, you, if you're a Christian here, consider this. When Jesus walked the earth and through his ministry prepared the church to be sent into the world, grew the first disciples, disciples which, which classroom did he use? When Jesus called his disciples, obviously, he didn't call them to read these appropriate texts, to come to church once a week and to otherwise kind of just figure it out in your day-to-day -day life. No, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
and they went and they lived their lives together. They saw him at work. They saw him teaching, traveling, healing, choosing to die for their sake. They saw him rest. They saw him weep. They saw him laugh. They saw him eat. They saw him sleep. Um, and they, they, they slept in the same room, you know. They, they were exposed to his life. And as they were exposed to one another and to Jesus, Jesus spoke into their weaknesses as they became exposed and, and, and into their struggles. But do you see that Jesus' model of discipleship wouldn't have worked in a classroom? And it wouldn't have worked in a once-a-week service. In a classroom, perhaps Jesus could have communicated some bare facts to his disciples, but he never would have seen their struggles and their joys. And they would have never seen him at work, seen the model. Now, they needed to be exposed. And this isn't just a thing that happened when Jesus was walking the earth and then the church kind of started doing its once-a-week thing after he left. Uh, the book of Acts, which is really the, the early history of the church, is filled with examples of the, the contexts in which the people of God were exposed to one another. You know, in Acts 2, after Peter's Pentecost sermon, we're told that the early church was devoted to the breaking of bread, that, uh, that is to eating together, by the way. They were devoted to fellowship and they were together. Their lives overlapped. And this is a reality of discipleship still. In order to grow as the followers of Jesus, as the disciples of Jesus, we need to see one another's lives. Some people uh, refer to this as, as life on life discipleship. But I want to be clear, it isn't just something that happens one-on-one. -on -one. Um, what we need is a community of the people of God of spirit-powered people around us who see our lives as they are. You, know, you actually don't find one-on-one -on -one in the New Testament at all. It just doesn't happen. It's all, always a group of people. I'm not saying that we can't do that. But just saying. So where do, where do GCs come into this? I mean, isn't coming to a Tuesday night group uh, not all that different to going to a Sunday morning service, really, functionally? Well, our desire is that these groups would be kind of seedbeds of authentic, exposed community. You're not going to be told week one, if you, if you pop along to Darren Bronn's place tonight, Darren's not going to strap you into a chair and say, tell me your deepest, darkest secrets and tell me them now. Um, Darren's not that kind of guy. That'll be Tuesdays. <laughs> Sorry, week, week three. Cool. We're closing Maitland. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Um, yeah, but, but our prayer is that these are, are, are a place where we grow to trust one another. Where we go, grow to, to, to trust one another as brothers and sisters, as we are, so that we can tell one another about our struggles and joys. Uh, and more than just telling, we're hoping that these uh, relationships that develop there in these communities develop outside of planned meetings as well. We're hoping to see the people of God grow in exposure to each other's lives. We're hoping that as those seedling relationships grow, we will invite each other in to actually be together in different spheres of our lives.
But actually, and obviously, being exposed isn't enough. Now, if, if, if we just get exposed to one another's sin and brokenness, huge step, but not sufficient. Being authentic has to come with being instruments. Jesus called his disciples with these words, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, and, and then at the end of his ministry, he gave a command that has applied to every Christian since. He said, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So every Christian is called not just to expose our lives to one another, but to be instrumental in discipling one another's lives, growing one another to be more like Jesus. And the way that we act as instruments is that we bring the truth about Jesus, the gospel, into the different facets of each other's lives. Uh, and we, we apply it lovingly, and one must emphasize the lovingly, to each other's lives. You know, Paul writes this. He says that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What Paul's saying is that the church is called, and, and he's speaking, by the way, that's in, in Ephesians 4, he's speaking to the whole church in Ephesus there about how their ministry as a people works. Um, if you want me to put that in context for you later on, come and talk to me, and I will. Uh, but what Paul's saying is that the church is called to be a people who lovingly speak gospel truths into one another's lives. We, we know he's talking about gospel truths because just a little bit later in the chapter, verse 21, he says that the truth is the truth that is in Jesus. So it's not general truth, it's Jesus' truth he's talking about speaking in love. But notice there, Paul envisages us being instruments of transformation in, each, uh, in every part of one another's lives. He says we are to grow up in every way into Jesus. So as we're exposed to one another, we speak gospel truths into one another's lives. And as we, as we come to believe the truth about Jesus, as it relates to different parts of our lives, we grow to be more like him. This is so vital, uh, both the exposure and, and the application of the loving truth. Because if you can't see my life, then you won't know the ways that I'm living contrary to the gospel. And we all have them. And, and, and I probably won't be able to see all of them on my own. I don't know about you, I'm not the best person to assess my life, whether I'm making the right call at the time. Not always. But, but then if you only see the struggles, but don't intentionally seek to bring the truth of Jesus into that, if we, if we know that we need to see each other's struggles, but we don't know the next step, then probably you'll end up pointing me away from Jesus as the solution to my problems. Let me give you an example. Suppose that I struggle with um, laziness at work. And actually, to be honest, in the past, this has been a thing that I've struggled with. So this is a real application. Um, how would you know that? Well, Maybe I'd tell you, hopefully I'd tell you, but maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I wouldn't even see the issue, right? Um, you know, take this into my current workplace down at the medical center, not, not this one, that one, um, where, where most of my shifts I work on my own, 
right? We have a couple of hours of overlap with another nurse in the middle of the day. And so I don't see other people's work rhythms. And so it would be very easy to fall into a, a rhythm of laziness at work without even really seeing it as a rhythm of laziness at work. Um, you know, suppose that was there. How would you know? Well, I'd need you to see, wouldn't I? I need Christian family that my life is so exposed to that they get chances to see those extra long lunch breaks that I take. Hypothetical here. Um, you'd need to be involved enough in my life that we, that we talk work on a regular basis, that we see each other's rhythms of life, you know, that you've had that brekkie with me where you saw that I left for work late. Or you've come over for dinner and saw that I arrived home early. But like we've said, exposure is not enough. Suppose you are exposed to my laziness at work, and well, what then, you know? Um, well, you might decide to step up and let me know that it's wrong, that the Bible calls me to work hard as to the Lord. Now, that wouldn't be untrue. But, but if we take Paul's principle of speaking gospel truth in love to be factual, to be right, then what's needed is something deeper. What I need is for you to bring the truth about Jesus to bear on my situation, to help me to see that the gospel is relevant to this struggle in my life, to call me to trust in Jesus in a way that brings change to this moment. And, and as I'm led to believe the truth, I become more like Jesus who worked and rested in a godly way. So, you know, practically, what, what do you do? Well, well, having found this area of need of the gospel application, um, perhaps, perhaps you'd first want to find the roots of the problem. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd want to sit down with me and, and have a talk to me through this. What, what's motivating me to live like that? You know, and perhaps, perhaps demotivation at work is the issue. I don't know. Like, I'm, we're digging into a hypothetical here. Perhaps the answer there is that I'm dissatisfied with my pay. Or that I have a, a sense of purposelessness in my work. You know, there's, there's two options that lead people to be lazy at work. Dissatisfaction with the, with the pay pack. Um, feeling like there's no purpose in what I do. Well, if money's the problem, perhaps you might want to remind me lovingly that as a son of God, I am getting paid way more than I ever dreamed. My, my satisfaction doesn't need to be in the amount that my employer pays me because when Jesus died for me, he won for me the riches of God. I became, the Bible says, an, an heir because Jesus died for me. Eternity with God was won for me. And not only that, but he won me the sure knowledge that God, who didn't spare his only son but gave him up for me, is for me and will provide what I need, even if it isn't what I feel like I need at the time. Or, if, or you know, suppose it's the other one. Suppose it's a sense of purposelessness, right? That's, that's the issue. Perhaps you'd want to remind me that in Jesus, I definitely don't need to feel purposeless because I have been given purpose in every part of my life and my purpose in my workplace transcends my job description. 
Perhaps you'd remind me that because I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and given new life to live in him, in every part of my life, including my work, Jesus has invited me onto, into his mission, into the mission of the gospel. He wishes to show others what he is like through me and ultimately to save others through me and to grow them to be more like him through me. What could be more purposeful? So my purpose isn't just the goals of a best practice nurse, farmer, teacher, supermarket employee, whatever. It's to be a shining light of the Lord Jesus who was faithful and so produces faithful workers. I have eternal purposes in my work. And what's more, I have a boss who has promised me that he is always with me until the end of the age and he has placed his Holy Spirit in me and so I have purpose and power in the workplace and therefore reason to work hard to the glory of God. This, this is central to our vision of the GCs. We want them to be a place where we grow in gospel relationships, not just in relationships, but gospel relationships, where we gain access to one another's lives in a way that even in the end will exceed the once a week meeting, will, uh, will lead us to see each other as we are and to see us growing to be more like Jesus. You know, perhaps you th hear that. Um, I suspect there's a few here who hear that and think that is a bit scary as a concept. You're, you're probably right. It, it is a bit scary. I feel it too. We, we naturally don't want to be exposed and to have our lives changed. We naturally don't want to deal with the painful process of challenging sin and growing to be more like Jesus. It's not just you. Ever, ever since Adam and Eve, really, uh, ever since they ate the fruit and then heard God walking in the garden. Do you remember what it says in the Bible that they did there? They ran and they hid and they blamed. Our tendency has been to hide and blame ever since then, to conceal sin and not to deal with it because it's too hard. But if you're a Christian, you've been called out of that, out of that destructive life of concealed sin and into the light of Jesus that really does change people. I hope the idea of, of defeating sin and being, being made to be more like Jesus excites you if you're a Christian uh, as much as it excites me because ultimately as we, are, as we are being exposed and being instruments, what happens is that we're being, we're being restored. Um, does anyone here like restoring things? I know Phil Redding does. Um, have a look in his shed sometime. Some, some people like restoring houses. Uh, I used to have a neighbour until very recently who, who, who bought the worst house in our area and set to restoring it. We're, we're not talking garden variety worst house. We're talking about literally everyone else that I ever spoke to about the place assuming it would be demolished and rebuilt. Um, but he bought it and he set down for the long reno. I thought he was crazy. He loved it. Some people like restoring cars. Um, maybe, maybe you've got one or, or a tractor in the shed like, like Phil here that you've been working on for years or, or, or some people like restoring clothes or tools or whatever. Really, um, this is what discipleship is. It's restoration. It's God through his people 
working to restore his people to the glory of Jesus, working to make us what he created us to be. But the thing about restoration is, as anyone who does restoration would know, it's a process. Anyone who restores anything can tell you that. It's a, it's a process with a lot of pain, with a lot of struggle, with a lot of rust to chip off and a lot of uh, moth holes to deal with. But ultimately, it's a process that ends in joy. A process that produces goodness. A worthwhile process. Actually, the, the process of restoring us is one that we're not called to do on our own. This process of discipleship, this challenging, beautiful process that we are seeking to incorporate into ourselves as a people and to cultivate in our GCs is a process that Jesus has committed to in the life of every believer. He's personally committed to that in your life if you're a Christian. When Paul describes the love of a husband for his wife over in Ephesians 5, he tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That the ultimate husband is Jesus, who loves his wife, the church, and that's you if you're a Christian, so sacrificially, so perfectly that he would die for her. And then he gives us this incredible promise of the, of the commitment of Jesus to the transformation of us, his people. What he writes is this. He says, have I got this up there? I do. Wonderful. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy, that is, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish so this process of restoration of transformation by the word of jesus is a thing that we are called to do certainly but at a higher level is a process that we can step into with confidence and with joy because our mighty savior has committed himself to it to the point of death You know, at the start, I said that the church is the spirit-powered disciples of Jesus sent to make disciples for Jesus. But equally, you could say that the church is the spirit-powered disciples of Jesus who Jesus is making to be more like himself. In the end, we'll be able to say it was all him. He's so faithful, so powerful, so good to us. So I hope... I hope that's got you keen for our GCs. I hope you're not scared off. That would be kind of the opposite of what I'm going for. Hope it hasn't made you too nervous. Maybe, maybe a little nervous. That'd be healthy. I'm excited to be starting this thing, which will, God willing, be a seedbed for being exposed, being instruments and being restored. For being the church. Having said all of that, next week we're going to devote our time to one other facet of our gospel communities, one other facet, in fact, that is central to being church, and that is being disciples on mission. So would you pray for me now about what we've spoken about today? Um, and then I'm going to invite... The, the, no, we're going to share in communion.
Jesus. Even as I say these words, I feel the weight of the fact that it is a painful process, or it can be a painful process, but also that it is a process that ends in joy to become more like you. And Lord, I'm, I'm reminded that our Saviour carried more pain for the transformation of his people than we ever will. You carried our cross up that hill. You died to rescue us. So Lord, we pray, lead us into the life of disciples. Lead us, as you said, to, to take up our cross and follow you. Lead us to be a people who are ready to be authentic with one another, who are ready to be instruments of change in one another's lives by the power of your spirit who are ready to be restored and lord we pray that you would faithfully be doing that in us through the gospel communities and in our lives as a whole i pray in the name of jesus amen we're going to take a moment for a, a time of communion now um, and and really as we do this uh, we are remembering the power behind what we've been talking about it's not in us, it's in what Jesus has done for us that we are able to step up and, and to grow to be more like him. That it is the power of the word about Jesus, the news that his body was broken for you, his blood was poured out for you. Um, it's in seeing that, knowing that in every part of our lives that we become more like Jesus. So I'd invite you, when you're ready, um, take, a, take a juice, take a piece of bread, and remember that Jesus died for you, died for your salvation, died for your transformation, died to bring you to God for all eternity in joy.